I think the concept of sending the band on a cruise with a shrink to work out their problems is as ridiculous as it is brilliant. I'm not entirely sure how long Bitch Slap will be bon voyage, but clearly, each day they were out of the studio would be a day that Willie, Lance, and I could make great strides towards the completion of records. Particularly in light of the fact that we no longer had to hide from Bitch Slap the fact that they were being replaced. These days, it's somewhat unusual to replace band players with session players. It's not entirely uncommon with drummers, but most producers will just settle for the band. It's also not uncommon for producers to lay down their own guitar parts or even keyboard parts. For the most part, though, rock music has become so edited and so manufactured that people don't even realize how lousy it is anymore. The bar has been lowered to such an extent that a band like Bitch Slap, which has average to below average players, could have been edited on Alcihad and fit right into the mainstream. But Willie doesn't make albums like that, and fortunately, neither do I, to date. It was kind of strange not having the band around. I felt as though my children had all gone off to camp and the house, or in this case the womb, was empty. I found myself longing for some of our old family rituals, such as cell phone detail. In most studios, and this one is no exception, there is a large counter that separates the back of the room from the listening position behind the console. Horizontal space is at a premium in the studio, and the counter is a magnet for all sorts of personal paraphernalia, particularly cell phones. People store their wallets, sunglasses, pagers, phones, change, and messages on the counter. The problem is, for some inexplicable reason, everyone leaves his or her phones turned on while making a take. Cell phones that ring or that automatically check for messages can make an electrical impulse that will not only be heard in the speakers, but will be recorded to tape. Not to mention the fact that listening to takes as cell phones are ringing left and right can be nothing short of distracting. Training people to either shut their cell phones off or to put their phones in the lounge is useless and hasn't worked to date on any session that I've ever been on. Even signs don't work. People never remember. So before every take, Lance and I have to be sure the room is clear of cell phones, and we have the extractions of phones down to a science. Here's how the operation works. As soon as the band leaves the room, Lance runs to the door and opens it as I throw him all the cell phones that are on the counter, one at a time in quick succession. We also keep count so that we know if we're missing one. That way we can make sure that nobody has accidentally brought it into the tracking room, which is worse than a phone being left in the control room. When a phone makes it into the tracking room, it is guaranteed to ring on a good take. I'm almost positive I read this on my brother's Murphy's Law poster that he had framed and hung in our bedroom when we were kids. Lance would catch the phones one at a time, gently slide them down the hallway, and then close the door. What I find most intriguing is that not one person has ever once mentioned anything about the fact that his phone was on the floor outside the control room. The band would pick up their phones like droids and re-enter the room as if nothing was out of the ordinary and their equipment was right where they'd left it. Of course, they then leave the phone on the counter again. Today, I started by recording bass parts with Lance, who was now partially rewriting the parts to their betterment. I wasn't quite sure whether that had been discussed in Willie's bargaining with the band, but I didn't give a shit either. Consequently, I didn't bother saying anything about it. Willie made phone calls in the lounge as he waited for us to complete the task, and when we had, Willie wanted to lay down some simple percussion. 
I love doing overdubs when all the mics are up in the room for tracking, because I have a plethora of mics to choose from quickly and painlessly. There are probably as many models of microphones as there are models of cars. While they are all similar in function, they're also unique. Selecting a microphone for an instrument or an overdub is sometimes arbitrary, but usually quite deliberate. Most good engineers don't usually like to hold up a session in order to find the perfect mic for a tambourine. While the source is always the most important part of the recording chain, the microphone will color the source, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. The real bitch is that sometimes negatively coloring a source is a positive for a given production. This was such a time, as I wanted the tambourine to sound thick and chunky, as opposed to light and jangly. Seeing as I didn't have any Poltex with a placebo chunky knob at my disposal, and seeing as every tambourine in the building sounded jangly, I was forced to use my choice of microphone to achieve the sound I was looking for. I tried several mics and ended up on a Coles 4038, which is a ribbon microphone. A ribbon microphone has a diaphragm made of ribbon, as opposed to a capsule made out of whatever capsules are made out of. I wouldn't know, because I engineer from a purely musical background, not a technical one. The coals colored the sound exactly the way I wanted it to. The tambourine now sounded thick and chunky, and I recorded Willie playing the tambourine on a chorus of the song for him to listen to. Willie hated my tambourine sound. Looking for something a little more jangly. Really? I think thick and chunky sound is far more appropriate for this tune. Don't get me wrong. I like the thick and chunky sound very much. But I think the thick and chunky tambourine is a bit much for this song. It needs to jangle. So Willie and I went around the tambourine discussion for about 20 minutes, playing each other examples of recordings with tambourines that would support each of our claims. If discussing a tambourine sound for 20 minutes seems excessive, I can assure you it's not. Both of our points were valid, and my job is not to kiss Willie's ass and agree with everything he does for the sake of speed. If Willie weren't interested in engaging in discussion over the tambourine, he would have said so. Finally, Willie agreed with my assessment, and we recorded the tambourine on the song. When Willie came back in and we listened down, the sound had grown on him, and he was completely digging on it. I, on the other hand, had grown to hate it. I think you're right. Jangly's better for this song. No way, man. I love the thick and chunky sound. So we went around that for about five minutes until I'd convinced Willie to lay down a jangly tambourine and we could compare. In the end, we kept both tambourines on tape. Not because we were putting off a decision, but because both Willie and I liked the chunk and the jangle together. The rest of the day was fairly uneventful. We recorded some guitars. The only other item of note was that Willie wanted me to play Whirly on a couple of the songs early next week. I play on albums all the time and love doing it, so that was fine by me. I made a CD of the roughs for myself, and I'm going to work out some parts over the weekend. Now, if we could just find someone to sing the album, then we could keep the band out of the studio for the rest of the record. But that would be asking too much. Right? Mixer man.